First Timothy chapter 4. We're going to continue in our exposition of the book of Timothy. And again, I want to encourage you uh, for your own benefit to be reading the book of Timothy along with uh, the messages as they're back to back, verse by verse, as we make our way through the book of Timothy. And uh, let's be reminded, too, uh, that the book of Timothy is a pastoral epistle. It's written from Paul to Timothy. Other epistles are written from Paul or John or whatever to the church or to churches. This is an individual letter from an individual to an individual to pass on some information that was necessary for that person to absorb. Similar to this is the book of Titus. In both Timothy and Titus, they're both told by Paul, in Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, to Titus, let no man despise you. In Ephesus was where Timothy was left. Titus was left in Crete. And in both cases, Paul was delegating each of these two men to carry on the ministry of the church. You know, church life is important. Paul was placing an emphasis on it by writing these letters to these two churches so that they would be able to promote the truth and to glorify God. So let's keep in mind that Paul was leaving Timothy or assigned Timothy to pastor, oversee, lead as an elder, head elder, if you will, the church at Ephesus. Now we have an epistle in all of the epistles named the epistle of Ephesians, written to those in Ephesus. So which came first, the letter of Paul's to Ephesus or Paul's letter to Timothy? I think if we go by standard biblical commentators, they have stated that Ephesus would have preceded Timothy. So keep that in mind that Ephesus had already received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Things that would, should be very helpful as we think of the background of the audience of people that were listening to this epistle that would eventually have been read to them, but that Timothy is asked to enforce these things, to bring these things before the church. If we were to ask ourselves the question of what is the theme, and I believe it had already been emphasized, but we're going to state it one more time. And before we do that, though, let's look at the Word of God itself. You know, being away for the last couple of weeks, it's, it's given me a little bit of a kind of a stand back and look at myself, look at us as a church body, where we're at, look at even what is a purpose of a sermon. What do we come together for on Sunday? I think we would all agree we've come together to worship God. And what does the word worship itself mean? Literally, it means to kiss towards, to kiss towards. So we there are the redeemed. We have a desire to want to praise the Lord. If he raised us up out of a horrible pit, if he took us out of the, the, the doldrums of, of the depressions of life and the, the mix-ups that we were a part of and the confusion that was in our minds and we came to know the Lord as our Savior. We want to praise Him. We want to worship Him. So the idea of a service on Sunday, which actually the Greek word is liturgy, it means to minister to. So this is an opportunity for us 
as individuals and as a corporate body to return to God the praises that he's worthy of, to kiss towards him our adoration and our love for the Lord. And we do that by prayers, praises, songs that we sing, the lyrics of those songs that are most often so rich and so biblical and scriptural that it creates in us a desire to want to glorify him even more. Our offerings, which is also a part of worship, is a way that we can say, Lord, this is not my own. All that you that I have is yours, and I'm giving back to you what you've given to me to give to you. And then, of course, the sermon can be looked at as a highlight, not necessarily, but everything in a way should be highlighted. Everything that we do when we come together on Sunday morning, particularly, to gather together to worship is to be praising the Lord. We get fed the word of God, but we also, in being fed and edified, we're giving back glory to God for it. So my responsibility is severe. It's important. It's significant that I have a, I have a duty, if you will, in the calling and anyone else that takes the pulpit to feed the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. So my responsibility today is to feed you for us to be fed the word. Now, the word of God, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, is all inspired of God for what purpose? For edification, exhortation. The word of God is life-giving and powerful. The word of God is also, uh, as it says here, given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, etc., etc. So there's a great benefit in hearing the word of God, in feeding from the word of God, each of us, as we go through the words of Scripture. So look with me at verse number 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is that? The following verse. For to this end, to this end, you wouldn't think that this is a goal of your Christian calling. To this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command, command, and teach these things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. I had said, what is the theme of Timothy? What is Paul's most focal point that he's trying to make in Timothy, and I think it's a portion our brother Pat spoke on two weeks ago in a wonderful message, I'm sure, where it says that that you might know that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is the place where truth is located. It's not in the Buddhist temple. It's not in the mosques. 
It's not in the universities. It's in the church. So we are responsible for upholding what is to be the pillar in the ground or firm foundation of the truth. And what is that? The next verse explains that, verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest. Actually, the better manuscript reading is who was manifest. What was manifest? Godliness is what was manifest. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, received up into the world, and received by all. Godliness is the focus of the epistle of Timothy. So remember that this is a personal epistle from Paul to Timothy, and our main theme here is that of godliness. You know, in the book of Ephesians, we have, besides the book of of the letter to the Ephesians, we have a reference to another epistle to Ephesians. Where is that located? Revelation 3, to the church of Ephesus. What are the comments that John makes about the church at Ephesus? You have left your first love. You've left your first love. That's a very um, penetrating thought, isn't it? Having left our first, what is our first love? Our sister Teresa gave her testimony. All glory be to God, how the Lord works in people's lives like hers and brings her to saving faith in Christ and turns her world upside down. Can you imagine where you would be, brother, if the Lord didn't save you? Or sister, where you would be if the Lord hadn't saved you? And as now you're saved, we're making progress. What is the ultimate goal? For whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his dear son. You might say, God's purpose in saving me was so that I could go to heaven. No, that's not, that's part of it, but that's not the main reason. It tells us his main reason is so that he could make many Jesuses in this world and in the world to come. And so the goal that we should all be pursuing is like Jesus says, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow, what a expectation. But don't ever limit the power of God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. We feel like we're losers. We feel like we're hopeless. We feel incompetent. And we don't feel that we can live up to the expectations that God places upon us in the Word of God. That's of the devil, brothers and sisters. Don't believe that. First Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He has given it to us. Now, this word godliness, as I say, is a key phrase that Paul is emphatic upon in his epistle. It's mentioned elsewhere. For instance, um, chapter 2, verse 3 that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Um, Chapter 2, verse 8, about women professing godliness with good works. The one that I quote in in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. Chapter 4 that we just were reading out of 
earlier in that chapter, exercise yourself rather unto godliness. The one that we had right today, bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. And then the sixth or seventh reference here is, if anyone teaches otherwise and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, into the doctrine which is according to godliness. Now how does one reach godliness? One of the deterrents in the book of Timothy here that Timothy has to strive with are those that are going to the law, to commandments, to the, to the externals as it were, in trying to make their lives better. I was just reading in my trip away for the last week and a half or two, uh, I, read, I read a book on um, the conversion of a Confucian, Confucius, you know that philosophy? And his name, once he got saved, he changed his name, I don't know how you would pronounce it in Chinese, but it's H-S-I, and what it means is devil conqueror. Whatever his name was before, he altered it right off the bat and called himself by that last name, the Devil Conqueror. We should all think of ourselves as Devil Conquerors as well. Tells us in the Bible to draw near to God, he'll draw near to us, but flee from the devil and he will flee from you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion seeks to devour us. Get thee behind me, Satan, we should repeat constantly because the devil is on our tracks. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are not at a loss whatsoever, brothers and sisters. We don't have to leave our first love. And that's why Paul has Timothy where he's at so that he can steady the ship so that he can encourage them so that they would not make shipwreck of their faith as some had already been doing. Some that had turned aside and gone after Satan. That expression turned aside or gone away or gone back is repeated over and over in First and Second Timothy because that's the warning that's being given. That's what's in the background here. In the last days perilous times shall come. In First and Second Timothy, our last days epistles. And they're actually later in the series of the New Testament writings. These epistles come late in their uh, chronological order. As I said, Timothy is left in Ephesus. Paul concerned himself for the Ephesians. And this is how he prays for them in the epistle of Ephesians. Let me give you a few examples. First, uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians 1, verse 15 and following. I'll just give you some snippets of it. That God may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of His glory in the inheritance in the saints. Next, and what is, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. What a passage. Our brother was saying, oh, wow, this is another wow. The exceeding greatness of his power. Every single believer has potential for power. 
Not from yourself. In me dwells no good thing. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That we might know the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. If you're a believer, praise God. What follows your believing is power from God to be able to live a life of godliness in an ungodly world. Our brother was reading in Titus, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. To who has it appeared to? To those that can now deny ungodliness and worldly lust who should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There's that word again, godliness or godlikeness that we are expected to be bearing. No wonder we call the light of the world the, the, the assaults of the earth here because we are God's special people, chosen us to be his own. Paul prayer, second prayer in, in Ephesians goes again, some examples of things that he was praying for them, that you might be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. One translation reads it that Christ may be at home in your hearts by faith. I like that nuance there. That there might be a a comfortable residence of the Spirit of God in me. That I'm not grieving Him to the point that there's an uncomfortability that I am giving to the Spirit because of my walk and my life, my thoughts and my attitude and my ways that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. Hallelujah to that. Which passes all knowledge that you might be filled. Listen to this. That you might be filled with what all, all the fullness of God. And then he concludes it in a benedictory way by saying, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the what power that worketh in us. You might think of yourself as very weak, very powerless, but it's contrary to what God says he has granted to you who believe. Do not limit God. Limit yourself. Don't trust yourself. But believe that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. I hope we have that kind of confidence and faith and trust in the Lord that he is able to do that within us. Now, while bodily training is of some value, I hope you all exercise this week. I was walking four miles a day on my uh, trip away, try to keep the blood flowing, keep the muscles toned up. And uh, so it's important, brothers. It, it, it does say it's profitable. There's some merit in it. Um, how, how are you taking care of your temple, the body that you possess? I examine myself on that, and I, I feel like I fail myself in that way that I don't take care of my physicalness as I should. And I know that can be exaggerated, and that's why it says it, it profits for a little time. It does say it profits, but let's keep in mind the profit that it brings is only for a season. 
in comparison to what it will be, what will be said next. I got into exercise when uh, my uncle was uh, best friends with uh, someone who was known and was called Mr. Worcester because of his working out, his building up his body, his weight training, etc. cetera. Uh, and my uncle got his best friend, Mr. Worcester, to buy me a set of York barbells weight set. And that was a big deal back in the, let's see, that would be in the 60s, early 60s. So I was able to put it downstairs in the basement, and one of my best friends, his name was Brian Erosion, he'd come over, we would work out and get on. We made a bench up for us so we could do some bench presses and all that. He ended up going on to play at, uh, uh, for the Baltimore Colts in the NFL. I ended up as a uh, 16th stringer at Holy Cross quarterback type of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, bodily exercise profited a little. And just, just a side note, Mr. Worcester, stopped training, and died of a massive heart attack while driving the car at the age of 44 years of age. Johnny Theodore was his name. That was very sad and very disappointing to me, who I had looked up to him because he was the one that got the barbell set, and he had a fantastic physique, but then he just let himself go, and he ended up with physical problems, obviously, internally, and he had a massive heart attack while driving on Route 9 on Belmont Street in Worcester. Just went off the road and died right there on the spot. Bodily exercise profits for a little time. It's a value, but godliness, but godliness is of what much more value? Is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life. There's promise for the present life. You want to have a happy life? You want to have a joyful life? You want to have real enjoyment of life? Go for godliness. Be godlike. Pursue the Lord. Get to know him. Peter in his epistle, 2 Peter 3, 18, right at the end of the two epistles, he says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the path that the Christian should be pursuing in his lifetime. For the present life and for the life to come. How often are you thinking about the life to come? I was visiting a woman in the hospital yesterday. She comes to our uh, Bible studies on uh, Tuesday, uh, Sister Bunny, and she has no hope. There's no medical hope for her to recover. Amazingly, her spirit is joyful. She has hope and confidence, assurance that she's glory-bound. And there's a distinct recognition that this life is short, this life is temporal, but the one that is coming is far greater. And actually, that's what we're called to, eternal life. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 6, Lay hold on eternal life, or what is truly life, because we can be easily caught up in the things of time and sense. They say you don't be so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. That's going to be somewhat nuanced a bit because it can give you the impression that, oh, be moderate, don't be extreme, because you're not going to be any earthly good. Well, 
in a way, I don't want to be any earthly good. I want to be just heavenly good. But at the same time, I don't want to be so ascetic that I'm losing out on the fact that my feet are still on the ground here. And I've got to deal with everyday people. And I don't want to be so kind of goofy or weird that I can't relate to the average person that I'm sitting next to on the plane or to someone who I'm crossing paths with and sitting in a cafeteria or restaurant uh, booth next to them or something of that sort. We do, do need to know how to, as Paul says, that if I be beside myself, it is to God, but if I be sober, it is for your cause. In other words, he knew when to be a David and be praising the Lord, caring less about what people think, but at other times you want to become all things to all men that you might by all means save some. So we have to somehow balance that heavenly calling with our earthly trip in this world. Verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The King James, I like the way it reads, uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, which is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a worthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I often ask people, have you ever heard about your need to be saved? Are you familiar with the word saved? And I know for me for 19 years, I never heard the word saved, never was taught it, never was challenged by it. And when I first started attending a Bible-believing church, a gathering like this, I heard the word saved and I asked somebody, what is this thing about being saved all about? And yet, it's right in the Bible. Peter says that in chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. We must be saved. The disciples asked Jesus, Can all be saved? How does, how does that exact expression go? Jesus uh, was asked a question um, about, uh, can we be saved? or Amen. Who then can be saved? Yeah, and that's, in, that's in, uh, in, in the context of the rich. Can the rich, can even the rich be saved? And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because rich men have their riches here. They save the things that be of men and not save the things that be of God. They're so earthly minded that they have no prospect of the life to come. That's why when a, when a person who's not saved is on their deathbed, it's tragic. They have no hope. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's in the next world to come. Whereas we have that confidence to die is to be with Christ, which is far better than being in this world. We have already tasted and foreseen that the Lord is good. We have already eaten the grapes of Eshkol before we get into the land of Canaan. We have a sweetness here that we enjoy that gives us a little taste of the honey of heaven here in this world because of our relationship to the true and living God. The faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The next one, besides the one that we just read, is in chapter 3, verse 1. And we dealt with this a little bit recently in regards to the topic of eldership. 
it says again, this is a faithful saying that if a man desire the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. Oh, Paul is telling Timothy, it's so important that you have good men, good leaders who fulfill the qualifications of what a leader should look like and act like and be like to lead the flock of God. Never perfect, but at least striving and coming into those the nearness of those categories as much as possible. So what is the true and trustworthy faithful saying here in verse 10 is this. For to this end, oh, this is the goal. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on God. You know, the whole thing about the bodily training has followed what our brother Randy spoke on last week about those who were uh, forbidding people to marry and also denying people to be able to have dietary liber- uh, liberalities, that they could eat anything, but they were being restricted on what they could eat. This, this sounds very monastic in early monasticism where there was rigidity in the way in which persons were expected to live so that they could gain more and more godliness by an outward exhibition of it. I mentioned that I was reading uh, on my vacation, it's a 400-something page book, on uh, the conversion of a Confucian. And boy, oh boy, when you, if I, I was thinking of reading some of the guidelines that are given to a young person who's pursuing becoming a Confucian, not Confucian, <laughs> Confucius follow philosophy. Boy, rigidity and memorization, reading is extensive. Memorizing of whole books, etc. And the kind of lifestyle that they're expected to live. It gave me a little insight to tell you the truth about China in the Far East. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism, they're, uh, they're related in a lot of ways. From this standpoint, that in all of those religions, it's all about self-aggrandizement. It's very self-centered. What can I do for me? What can I do to get peace for myself? How can I achieve this higher level of spirituality without having really a higher power? The power is within me and with my ability to contact that kind of invisible world of gods that somehow I can draw some spirituality from that can benefit me. And it's all, you could say, very works-oriented. You must do all of this to gain that. In Christianity, it's a whole nother ball game. You see, there's only two religions in the world, the religion of do and the religion of done. The religion of do is do this, do this, do this, and you'll gain that. In Christianity, the religion of done, as Jesus said, it is finished. All that God required for the penalty of my sins that would have kept me out of heaven, Jesus accomplished it on the cross once and for all. We often say, we're not saved by works, but we are saved by works, the work of Christ. His works for me is what becomes a benefit from him to me Because he said, it is finished. He paid the debt of my sin and gave me that peace and assurance that where he is, there I shall be also. 
And by having that knowledge of Christ and that peace, that my sins are gone, buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. And because my sins are gone, I'm now filled with the Holy Spirit of God that enables me to live righteously and godly in this present evil world. And in this world, to the Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rules of the darkness of this world and of spiritual wickednesses in high places. Put on, therefore, the whole armor of God. We strive. These who Timothy has to address and correct these stringent rules is trying to liberate them and understand that it's grace that produces godliness. That's where the source of power comes from. It's not from self. It's not even, this sounds kind of crazy, but just being a reader of the Bible is not sufficient. Not that the Bible is insufficient, but it's a accompaniment of the Holy Spirit with the life-giving power of the Word of God that has a life-changing effect upon me. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, this kind of correct corrective is given when it says, it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with foods that have not profited them that have been occupied therein. They're not really profiting properly if their emphasis is on food in the physical. It's the spiritual that matters. And Paul corrects that, of course, as our brother, I'm sure Randy took care of that last week uh, in his message, which I only got to watch for a short time. For some reason, I lost the live stream at that point, regrettably. But brother Randy, I believe you would have done a good job. Huh? How did he do, folks? Huh? Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you think? Anyway, I hope you were blessed. I'm sure you were. I'm always blessed by a brother Randy. Um, so here, uh, in closing, to this end, we toil and strive because we have a hope set on the living God, who is, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's the Savior of all people. What does that mean? He can't be obviously every individual's personal Savior, because we know that's not the case. Again, going back to Ephesians, He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption of sonship. Who's us? It's not them. It's not all. It's only some that are the ones that can truly claim a relationship with God. For instance, is God the Father? He's the Father of all. The Bible tells us but he's the father especially of those who believed. Does that make sense to you? Or is not Jesus the king of kings and lord of lords? Is he not lord? He is. He's lord of all. But is he especially the lord of those that have bowed the knee and with the mouth confessed that Jesus Christ is lord? Those are the ones that have their true and living relationship with the living God. 
For instance, in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, provide for your own, talking about supporting your family financially with needs that they would have. It says, provide for your own, but especially, there's that same Greek word, especially those who are of your own household. So there's a generalization of, of, a, of a, a prospering others collectively, but then there's an individual selection of a few that get the benefits of, uh, that are the ones that are to be zoomed in on. You see, God is the father of all, but really he's, on another, on another note, he's only the father of some. You have what you could, what I could, what I'm calling a universal paternity versus an intimate paternity. Do you understand that? A universal paternity. He's the father of all, meaning that he's the father of creation. He brought all things into existence. He fathered everything. But that's a universal paternity. But he's a father to those who have the indwelling of the spirit who can cry out and say, Abba, Daddy, Father, that intimacy. Not everybody can say that. So if you can praise the Lord, and you can do that because you have the Holy Spirit of God that came because God in His mercy called you, and you responded to that gospel message and trusted Christ as your Savior, and God gave you the Holy Spirit and has transformed your lives from what you were to what you are and what you shall be. Godly. The Lord has set upon him that is godly for himself, Psalm 4, verse 3. That's his desire. Now, we're never going to reach that pinnacle. We're never going to be fully godlike. But there should be a semblance to the, to the Lord. People should see us and identify us. I heard of a case where this was a long time ago in a part of the country where there was no... In this particular individual's life, I believe he was an Indian and had lived on a reservation, and he heard in a conversation somebody in the next booth talking about a, felt about a Christian and describing his character. And the person said, who, is the, who could he be talking about? And he, th- he knew something about Jesus, and he said, sounds like he's talking about Jesus. And he wasn't talking specifically about Jesus, but he was talking about the character of someone who was a Christ follower. Paul is telling Timothy, in a great house there are vessels of dishonor, but there are also vessels of silver. And he wants us to be the silver vessels, as it were, in the household of God, to be the godly ones that we can be as a people. There's not some that are godly and some are ungodly in the church. We are all godly. But we need to strive to be more like our Lord. It is a faithful saying. In the last words, Paul says to Timothy, these things command and teach. Command and teach. Do you have an ear to hear the word? Now you might say, oh man, I'm so far from God. Maybe you're not saved. It seems like if you asked me to be what I became after I get saved, I would say, no way. I could never be like that. Can anyone say amen to that? Randy, I can see you would be the type to say, no way could I be. Uh, you know, we, we, were, uh, we were rascals. We were uh, connivers. We were uh, 
apart from God. But when the Lord saved us, all of a sudden all things become new. Why am I shedding the old man and those things that once charmed me most? Because I found a sweeter story. I found a greater gain. I've come to know Jesus. And that's what really matters in this world. Whom to know is life eternal. Brothers and sisters, we get a lot, do we not, to be praiseworthy to God for his mercy in saving us and bringing us from darkness to light and from the kingdom of the, the devil to the kingdom of God's dear son. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May the Lord bless his word to you. And I trust that God has fed you somehow, some way through the word of God today and that you go away saying, man, that really affected me. No praise to Gary. Give God all the glory because it's all of him. I got nothing to give you. It's only what can come from this book and by the Spirit of God that can minister to your heart and you can rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, Paul, he says, rejoice. What a rejoicing life we can have as followers of Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer and then we're going to try to sing a closing song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is so instructive to us. Lord, we know that we tend to wander and stray. We find ourselves, Lord, drawn away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But we thank you, Lord, that godliness is profitable unto all things of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Lord, thank you that you planted the God of your saving grace into our hearts, our Lord Jesus, who has empowered us by the Spirit of God to be able to live a life that is to your honor and glory. Father, if anyone in this room does not know Jesus, Lord, have mercy upon them. May they come to know you, Lord. Might they realize what they're missing in this life and in the life to come without having a knowledge of Jesus. Lord, open their hearts. Give them eyes spiritually to see what they cannot naturally see. Lord, you are a supernatural God who does miracles, and anyone saved is a miracle. And we pray for anyone who's not saved, Lord, that the miracle of new birth would come their way and that they would trust Jesus as their Savior and experience the joy, the peace that passes all understanding. As we're reminded when Jesus preached first, he said that I came to heal the brokenhearted. And, Lord, maybe someone here is brokenhearted that needs, Lord, the life of Christ in them to change them, to give them a peace, to set the captive free, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Lord, may it please you to break the bonds of someone who's still yet in their sins. Give them life from above, we pray thee, as we give you worship and thanks in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.